science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week, in honor of Valentine's Day, we're presenting stories about our greatest passion, science. Of course, <laughs> as physicist Richard Feynman said, physics is like sex. Sure, it may give some practical results, but that's not why we do it. <laughs> Just like all great loves, science can be frustrating. It can disappoint us. It can even break our hearts. And to be completely frank, it rarely does the dishes. Really does not pull its weight around the house. But when we really need it, it's there for us. Our first story today is from Parmir Bahia. It was recorded in October 2018 at Caveat in New York at our show in partnership with the Psy Out Conference, which is produced by Rock EDU and ASBMB. It's a lovely day in England, and by that I mean it's not raining. I'm eight years old and at my uncle's wedding. I'm dressed up to the nines, dancing around. I think I'm awesome because I have no reason to assume otherwise. A random auntie comes over to speak to my mum and the subject turns to that of children. My mum points out my two sisters and I and the auntie says, oh, no sons. No, says mum. That's okay, she says unconvincingly. Boys are all right too. Uh, girls are all right too. And that's when I realise that the boy child is king and his birth is to be celebrated. And the girls are reduced to what kind of marriage material we are and become a lifelong kind of damage control exercise. She's too fat, too thin, too tall, too dark. She can't cook. She goes out too much. I've seen her with boys. <laughs> and even aged eight, I'm getting super frustrated. I'm like, for fuck's sake, what, what is it that they can do that I cannot? Like... Okay, you can pee standing up, but I don't see anyone winning awards for that. <laughs> so for my parents and I, this is the beginning of a struggle between what I can and what I should do. So my dad, on the one hand, is teaching his daughters how to use power tools, how to change a light bulb, how to rewire a plug. And my mum, in the meanwhile, is telling me how before I was born, she expected me to be a boy. And that kind of stings. She thought I'd be clever, an engineer or something, as if that's something that's not possible for a girl. She goes ahead, though, and she names me Barambir. So for those of you that don't know, Sikh names are unisex. But Barambir tends to go to boys because it means the greatest or the one true warrior. This does mean, though, mine taken with my middle name means I am warrior princess. Yes. Thank you. Uh, admittedly, it'd be much easier to be called Zena than Warrior Princess, uh, <laughs> but you, um, pardon me, call, but um, where's the fun in that? So, names aside, my sisters and I, being girls, had to be protected, even on the mean, leafy suburban streets of London. And that meant no going out, no after school activities, and definitely no boyfriends. We were to go from our parents' house to our husbands'. So in the absence of any kind of social life, it meant that I put my head down and studied. 
I realized that I love science and I excelled at it. And that's something that my parents were proud of. At some stage as an undergraduate, I realized that somebody would pay me to do experiments for a living. Like, how awesome is that? I love the idea of being at the forefront of something new, being able to use super cool new techniques. When I first heard of fluorescent proteins or saw an action potential from a nerve, you should see my little face. I was in nerd heaven. As an idealistic 20-year-old, I realized at some stage to, to get ahead, I should probably get a PhD. No, mum says, you're going to be too old by the time you're done. You realize she's insinuating I'm going to end up an old maid. And so I channel my inner Xena. I stand up for myself. And I remind her that she also had to battle with her family in India in order to get a master's. And she put off getting married until she got married to my dad at the ripe old age of 26. <laughs> yeah. And I wanted to share with her that this was my dream. I knew that she hadn't been able to live hers. Because when she moved to the UK, she wasn't confident enough with her English to carry on teaching. So that meant she ended up working in factories for the rest of her life. Fine, she relinquishes. But no one wants to marry an overeducated girl. But I complete my PhD uh, in pharmacology and I go on to do my first postdoc. All the while, my family is rushing me to meet suitable boys, me fending them off whilst dating decidedly unsuitable boys. <laughs> I have a thing you see for tall, skinny, dark-haired white men and I was staying very true to type. And of course, because I'm not meant to have a boyfriend, as far as they're concerned, I don't have one. Now, the time comes to find a new job, and I'm offered a neuroscience postdoc at the University of South Florida. Age 30, the desire to marry me off is ramping up to fever pitch, and so I'm ready to cross the Atlantic for that reason alone. <laughs> Even to Florida. <laughs> so... But as a scientist, I get to rationalize that it would look good on my CV to have a stint in the US. And so I pack my bags and I move to Tampa. There in a new city with no friends, I sign up to a running club. And that's where I meet a cute and funny Spaniard called David, who also turns out to be a scientist. We share in the scientific highs. We commiserate when another grant goes down the pan. He's also a big fan of outreach and science communication. If it wasn't for him, I probably wouldn't be here today. We go from being acquaintances to friends, from friends to a couple. And whether it was because I realized I trusted him with all of my passwords or... <laughs> we're like that. Or that he makes me laugh until I cry. Or whether it's just his tolerance of this foul-mouthed, short-tempered, crazy woman <laughs> that he tolerates with this superhuman patience. But I realized that I don't want to be with anybody else. So when my mum said no one wants to marry an overeducated girl, replace the no one with no nice Sikh boys. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, and I get it. They wanted me to marry someone of my own culture because the England they experienced as immigrants in the 70s was not the England I experienced as a first generation growing up there. And so they had these ideas about kind of honor and continuing that culture. 
David, in the meanwhile, is probably not finding this very easy to understand, but he takes this all with amazingly good grace. Now, you may be wondering why maybe I just, I should have spoken to my parents. I'm sure everything would have been fine. Like, what's the worst that could happen? So I'd heard the horror stories about, for example, a Sikh woman, neighbor of ours, who'd married a Jamaican guy. Her parents disowned her, and so they've never met their awesome grandchildren. Or the girl who had a boyfriend of a different religion who knew her parents didn't approve, who was trying to run away except the parents found out. They killed her and they buried her in a concrete floor. And while there's no universe in which I imagine my parents ever trying to hurt me, there was a possibility they wouldn't speak to me again. So, not wanting to confront this, David agreed to stay in my not-so-little secret. Until one random Sunday morning, he's babbling on about applying for a green card and how this would be so much easier if we were a couple. I'm like, what, what are you talking about? You mean like a married couple? And that's how he proposes. <laughs> as awkwardly as only a computer scientist can. <laughs> how could I possibly say no? <laughs> So obviously the time came to kind of out myself from this secret. As you may have realized, I'm not exactly a shy and retiring type. I have, as we say in the UK, got a mouth on me. Uh, At the time I was 33 years old, I had a PhD and I traveled the world. I've given uh, talks at big conferences. And yet the idea of raising the subject of David with my parents has me shitting bricks. I try and convince myself that at this stage they'll be happy I'm marrying anybody. (laughs) But it's not helping to calm the nerves at all. So the time comes and it coincides with a trip to the UK for my sister's big, fat, three-day Indian wedding. (laughs) With all the food, the clothes, the drunken dancing. This is just the icing on my shit cake. So after the festivities are over, everybody else has gone to bed. It's just my mum and I left on the sofa. She turns to me and the subject turns to the inevitable. So when are you going to find a nice boy to marry? Fuck, 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 fuck. (laughs) Uh, Actually, mum, do you remember David who got stranded in London for Christmas last year? Yes, she says. And I finally explain who he is, where he's from, what he does, all the shit they should have heard from me years ago. Then she says, with the face of a lifelong vegetarian who's just been offered a ham sandwich. (laughs) You are going to get married, right? You're not just going to live together. (laughs) Yes, mum, that's the plan. Okay, she says. And I'm not sure I have the exact words to share with you how relieved I was, but that one little phrase meant that decades of 
pressure and expectation and guilt were finally lifted from my shoulders. She looked kind of sad, so I was trying not to kind of jump up and down on the sofa with joy. <laughs> Yay for happy endings. Um, she can't have been that sad, though. She turns to me at the end of it and says, there are no Indians in Tampa? <laughs> All right, Mum. My dad, in the meanwhile, is too excited at the prospect of going to Spain for our wedding. He seems to be overlooking the whiteness of his future son-in-law. <laughs> so, I'd love, to tell you, I'd love to tell you that my parents, everything that they did was for our benefit. They honestly thought they were doing the best for us. And my mum, in this story, will have come across as a complete hard-ass, which she is. <laughs> But at the same time, she is quirky, she is funny, she is the most forgiving person I know. She loves her kids with all of her heart, and now David is one of them. In fact, actually, both of my parents adore him. He's free tech support, as far as they're concerned. <laughs> and while some Cultural changes are very, very slow and painful. I'm now 40 and my mum will still ask me if I've made David's dinner. <laughs> Actually, while I'm here, she's worried he's not eating properly. <laughs> but it feels like, as a culture, my family is starting to come round. So I now have cousins, one married to Robbie and one married to Steve. David has met the clans both in the UK and in India, so has been accepted. But there's more than one kind of acceptance. And there's one that we have to have it for each other as academics, because that's weird, frankly. Like, it's a weird situation to be in. And our relationship works because of our shared love for science and the fact that we tolerate all the crap that comes with being a scientist. It works because he sees me as his equal. And it works because I am that overeducated girl. Thank you. That was Parmbir Bahia. Parmbir is a neuroscience PhD working at the University of South Florida. She studies the role of nerves in the respiratory system and how they might hold the key to understanding diseases like asthma and COPD. When not researching, she runs Taste of Science, a science festival for adults, and a podcast called Two Scientists. Our next story today was recorded at Story Collider's first ever show in a non-English-speaking country, Germany. Uh, but if you don't know German, don't panic. This show, and therefore this story, were in English. Live events in Berlin are sometimes in English or in a mixture of English and German, like with our friends at The Dead Lady Show, which if you haven't heard of it, please do check out The Dead Lady Show and their podcast, which highlights fabulous ladies of history, such as Ada Lovelace, for example, or Marie Curie. I feel like you would be into it. But our first ever show in Germany was an interesting experience, especially when it came to hosting, which I did with our Toronto producer, Misha Gajewski because it was the first time we'd ever been in front of an audience that was translating things in their heads as we spoke. So I would think a joke had whiffed, and then 10 seconds later when I was moving on to something else, suddenly they would laugh. Or, you know, maybe they were just humoring me. Who knows? <laughs> uh, 
Uh, but if you've been to one of our live shows, you know that there's a line we often say right at the start, which is that the first rule of Story Collider is there is no learning at the Story Collider. The science in our stories is for entertainment purposes only. So for this show, I used all four years of high school German that I have in my brain to translate this message for our Berlin audience so that there would be no confusion, no risk of learning whatsoever. So for all of our German listeners, of whom I'm sure there are many, Lernen ist bei Storykleider nicht erlaubt. Die Wissenschaft dient nur zur Unterhaltung. Bitte. Our next story today is from Monica Dunford. It was recorded in November 2018 at Prachtwerk in Berlin at our show in partnership with Springer Nature and as part of Berlin Science Week. I was in crisis. It was my freshman year of college, and I discovered that I hated chemistry. Well, actually, let's be honest. I was bad at chemistry. Every single one of my chemistry experiments was ending in explosion. If the purpose of the course had been to create the perfect mushroom cloud, then it would have been acing the class. Now, to make matters worse, my backup plan, which had been to major in creative writing, was going even worse. I had never seen grades so low. Suddenly, that year, which had started off with such youthful optimism, was literally going up in smoke. So one day after one of my physics classes, the professor was announcing that they were looking for help in the summer in the labs, and I wasn't interested. Physics to me was everything that was boring. It was cold, it was passionless. I mean, honestly, does, does anyone like boxes on an incline? I mean, does, does anyone here get excited about, about friction? So they would be paying six bucks an hour, he continued, and I suddenly stopped and looked up. Six bucks an hour. Now. That was a raid a girl could sell her soul to the devil for. And so I applied. And much to my surprise, since I basically met none of their requirements, was accepted. On the first day on the job was one of those typical Southern California days. Beautiful blue sky, not a cloud to be seen. Perfect temperature. And the professor of the lab took me downstairs into the basement, and it was cold, dark, and loud. And he swung open the door in one gesture and says, this is my lab. And I am greeted with what looks like a pile of junk. I mean, off to one side, there was this tank water tank made out of plywood and, and trash bags. And in the middle of the room was a, a table that was full of, of scraps and other bits of wire. And then off to one side, there was this freezer that looked just like the one my dad had got at a garage sale for like 15 bucks. And my mother was so pissed. And I thought to myself, this this surely can't be cutting-edge research. This, 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 this junk pile here cannot be cutting-edge research. I mean, it, there must be some mistake, right? I mean, the real lab must be, must be behind some door somewhere. This can't be it. But he was in, was in another world. He gazed around the room like, 
like a man in love. This is my lab, he whispered. Now my 19-year-old self looked up at him and thought, what a loser. (laughs) What a loser. Am I really going to spend my summer in this cold, dark place? But, you know, six bucks an hour is six bucks an hour, and so that's how I spent my summer, in that cold, dark place. And it was assembly line work. I was basically working on putting together light-sensitive light detectors called PMTs. I would take one out of the box, I would put it on the table, I would test it. I would put it into the tank of water, would test it. I would put it into the freezer, I would test it. And I sent all this data to some graduate student upstairs who I never saw, and I did this hundreds of times. And there was no moment of epiphany in that summer. There was no moment of revelation. There was no moment of even real fun. But it was in that junkyard that I discovered and learned how to do cutting-edge research. You know, I remember once I was sitting at the table trying to fix something, and I, I went through a bunch of papers and looking for the instruction manual. And, and I had to break out in laughter, because it was like, I've left instruction manual territory long ago. This is cutting edge. When something arrives to you sleek and fancy like your iPhone, that's no longer cutting edge. That's production. Research is a long and winding road, full of twists and turns and sharp jabs sometimes. And it is, therefore, by definition, just messy. So one cold, dark lab led to another. I found myself working in labs, working in in mines underneath mountains, in mines that were 2,000 meters underground, in going dark and deep, I discovered a love for the vast and the infinite. Now, I'm a particle physicist, which means that I study the tiniest particles we know of, that were tinier than any atom. And yet, these particles hold the key to a lot of things about the universe. So, for example, why is there no antimatter me? Why, Why do we have galaxies? Why are we even here? These were the questions that I wanted to find the answer to. This was part of that long, windy road that I wanted to be on. And besides, I realized I kind of liked the junkyard feel. Actually, as a matter of fact, my grandfather actually owned a junkyard. So it was, in a sense, sort of like coming home. After I finished my PhD, I couldn't get on a plane to Geneva fast enough. In Geneva, Switzerland, they were building the Large Hadron Collider, the biggest machine built by man, so it's marketed. And it was about to turn on, it was about to start, and and my timing was going to be perfect. I wanted to be right there in the middle of it when it started. We were working nights and days and weekends to get this machine working, to get the detector working. I work on the ATLAS experiment, and it's one of the experiments at the Large Hadron Collider, and it's big in every dimension. It's five stories tall, it's 7,000 tons, it has more than 3,000 kilometers of cable, and most importantly, it has a 15-page author list. 
So I was working on the electronics, and I was doing everything from testing the electronics to making sure they were working correctly to literally on my hands and knees crawling under the floor to run cable. And we were running into problems everywhere. This is a detector that took 15 years to build. And we were getting cables coming from the US that weren't fitting to electronics boards that were coming from Brazil, that weren't interfacing with other boards that were coming from Germany. And so there we were, working, as I said, nights and weekends just to get this thing running. Now, at the same time, there were 15 pages of other physicists and technicians who were working on getting the accelerator working, the LHC. Now, the LHC is basically the easiest thing you could design. You take two things, in our case, protons, and you smash them together. And out of that collision comes a lot of stuff, and the Atlas detector is like a gigantic camera taking a picture of all of that stuff. So we were like working like mad to get the detector working, and the LHC team was working like mad to get the, the accelerator working, and it was all coming to the day of first beam. And finally, the day of first beam arrived, and it was a big event. Hundreds of news agencies descended on CERN like some sort of swarm of locusts that were just flowing everywhere. We were, it was so big that it was, we were actually the Google emblem for the day. So to fail on this day would be to fail in front of every Google user on the planet. So it was pretty tough. The pressure was high. I kept telling myself that I was excited. But the truth was, I couldn't sleep. I kept staying awake at night thinking to myself, please God, if it fails, don't let it be my cable. <laughs> so just to up the ante a little bit, we were going to do this. We were going to run the beam literally for the first time in front of the press. We weren't going to do a single test run beforehand. We were just going to do it right in front of them. Now, at the time, that sounded like a good idea. Um, but in retrospect, it was probably pretty stupid. So the LHC, therefore, was going to throw us a little bit of a softball. Now, usually we take two beams and we collide them together. But that's pretty hard to do. The beams are you know, microscopic. And our detector has to be timed to the nanosecond. So if, we, if our detector is not functioning correctly, what it means is that essentially we take the picture at the wrong time and we miss the event. We were very afraid that this would happen. So the, B, the LHC was going to send a single beam around, and it was going to smash that beam into a metal plate. And that was going to be the equivalent of a, of a floodlight of particles. And the logic behind this was basically, well, we've got 100 million channels. Let's just hit them all. One has to be working. And so that's what we did. We sent around a single beam, and we tried to hit every single one of our electronics simultaneously. Now, on the day of first beam, I remember walking into the control room, and I was passing news truck after news truck after news truck, and my heart just sank at each one. I mean, it's not that I was afraid of failure. I mean, research is all about failure. It's about failing, tweaking, failing, tweaking, tweaking again, failing again. 
It was failure going viral. You know, it's, it's one thing if your experiment doesn't work as planned. It's a totally different thing when your grandmother calls you to tell you your experiment didn't work as planned. <laughs> so on the day of first beam, when the LHC called the, our, the Atlas control room to tell us that they were sending beam, it's like the entire room just stopped breathing. Now the Atlas control room is the absolute antithesis of that physics junkyard feel. It has very sleek, modern desks. It has an almost apologetic number of flat screen computers. It has huge projected monitors across the front, you know, showing a variety of diagnostics and, and, and uh, screens. There's not a single piece of trash. It's immaculately clean. So if you, if you leave in anything, like a little scrap of paper, it's just, it's just gone, like a fairy just took it away. I think the press must have been a little misled when they were standing in the control room because I think they must have been expecting production. They must have been expecting something sleek and cool and fancy. But despite the look of the control room, this was still cutting edge. And so when Beam arrived at the detector, there were no lights, there was no flashing anything, there was no immediate indication that Beam had even arrived or that we had recorded it. All there was was a bunch of physicists hunched over their computers, desperately looking for that beam data. And finally, somebody found it, and they brought it on to one of the monitors in front of the room. And one head looked up, two heads looked up, and suddenly everybody looked up, and there it was. Data. <laughs> for the first time in 15 years, data. After so much sweat and toil and pain, data. And for me, it was as if this room full of photographers and full of cheering physicists just fell away. And I stood there, and I found myself a woman in love. Thank you. That was Monica Dunford. Monica is an experimental high-energy particle physicist working on the Atlas detector at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. She is currently at the University of Heidelberg in Germany. Her research ranges from combing through petabytes of data in search of new elusive particles to crawling in small, dusty places connecting thousands of kilometers of cables. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker, as well as Executive Director Liz Neely, with help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Katie Wu, me, Aaron Barker, and Misha Gajewski. The podcast is produced by senior podcast editor Zoe Saunders with help from Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Caveat and Pragwerk for hosting these shows and to our German fans for humoring me. I do appreciate it. Thanks for listening and happy Valentine's Day, everyone. <laughs>